If you were to ask someone, what do you want to be? Do you want to be radicalized and um, be pushed as part of a herd towards authoritarian control? They would say, no, that's not what I want, right? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest for this episode is Ellen Goodman, who is professor of law at Rutgers University and a thought leader on media policy, platform policy, and algorithmic governance. So her expertise intersects with a lot of the problems we're having with political mis- and disinformation online and what we might be able to do with changes to platforms, policy, and the law. We had a good conversation about her work and many of the challenges of this era. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Ellen Goodman of Rutgers University. Launching a campaign? Change Digital launches campaign websites in as little as 72 hours using your templates built with your goals in mind. Choose your template, submit website content, and we'll take care of the rest. You'll also get social and email templates that are easy to use and match your website's look and feel. For less than $1,800, launch your campaign with a professional digital presence starting on day one. Visit changedigital.us to learn more and get started. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Nathaniel. How are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Ellen Goodman. I'm a professor of law at Rutgers University. Um, I'm also dean of strategic initiatives. I've been in, at Rutgers for about close to 20 years, and before that, I was a lawyer. I was a partner at a Washington, D.C. firm called Covington & Burling. A big firm and also a Harvard Law grad, I noticed. So you have all of those high credentials. Tell me a little bit about where you come from. Where did you grow up and what kind of background before law school? I grew up in Philadelphia, which is where I live now. There are many of us Philadelphians who return. I come from a family of lawyers, a lot of lawyers, um, and a bunch of journalists. So it was either going to be law or journalism for me. And I went to law school because I wanted to be an environmental lawyer, and I wanted to was interested in what we called global warming from pretty early on. And so that's what I wanted to do with my life was um, stop global warming and protect animals. And, you know, as I tell my law students, sometimes you just don't know where, where your career is going to take you. And if you just follow kind of people you love and great mentors, you might end up in um, surprising places. So I ended up in media law, which, you know, in the end combined my interest in journalism and law, but it wasn't my plan. Did media law come to you during law school? When I went to law school, there was very little, um, almost no, nothing that we would call tech law, very little intellectual property law, very little. There was First Amendment law, but um, very little of what I do now was, was taught in law school. It was my firm and the people in my firm. Because I was interested in environmental law, I was interested in federal regulation and regulatory law, which Covington and Burling is, is well known for. And at the firm, 
you were just assigned to a practice area, it may not be exactly what you wanted to do. And so I, I did environmental law, but then I was also assigned to what was called the communications practice. And there were great people in it. And, and so it really was them who attracted me, not so much the field. And when the internet came along in 1995, 1996, we sort of pivoted. We kept doing media law, but then we also encompassed uh, what was called cy- cyber law. I don't know anything about cyber law, particularly. What was it about that that uh, was interesting and and changing as as you started to practice it? Well, I guess I can answer that in two ways. I can talk about the substance, but I'm not sure, Nathaniel, about your audience. But um, I I also like to tell um, uh, law students that sometimes it's um, kind of the procedure of your work or the method of your work that can be as compelling as the substance. And so one thing about cyber law or tech law is that it's really fast moving. Um, you work closely with the client, you know, the engineers, the um, uh, business people, the visionaries. And so it's because it was a small field and it was fast moving, there weren't like the millions of layers that there might be in other kinds of more established industries. I liked the way things went. I liked the flow. Um, substantively, you know, I think that, um, look, in the 90s, I mean, we now feel really differently about it, right? But in the 90s, in the early 2000s, when I was practicing, there was just a huge amount of enthusiasm. Remember, these were like the end of history times, the Clinton years, there was this sense that nothing but good was on the horizon. And and cyberspace, relatedly cyber law, was all part of that. So it was a very kind of positive, pro-social environment. And when you worked at a big firm, as one can imagine, sometimes there can be tensions between the work you're doing and your value system. And that was one area where there there really was not a big gap between um, the way you wanted the world to be and the way your clients wanted the world to be. Telecommunications Act of 1996, is is that the big legislation in that time in your area? Yes. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. What from that still is structuring and important to what we do, particularly I'm interested in how in the political world online, how the way that's regulated is affecting us? Oh, I mean, so completely. I mean, the thing that maybe we'll get to is Section 230, which is which is what most people, I mean, I, that, that's kind of the, the top line um, a provision of that law that, that has a lot of people talk about a lot, but there's so much else. I mean, that, that law you know, first of all, it essentially structured how the FCC deals with telecom and cable and broadcasting. So it, it one thing it did was it preserved these sorts of silos of information distribution or media distribution. Um, it established this very light touch regime with respect to the internet, which of course was very nascent and, and little at the time. So Section 230 was part of that, but so was, for example, not having net neutrality rules, um, you know, decision to kind of let the market play out with respect to the internet. And so now today, the internet is kind of everything. It basically set the course for a, a deregulatory or an, or a not unregulated um, space that we're now grappling with. My angle on it was as a software entrepreneur built software online in the you know early 2000s, kind of a little bit after the first wave of it, 
but when the political campaign world would tolerate going online because they thought it was safer not to be in the meantime. And so I kind of watched the world from that standpoint. It was just an amazing revolution to, you know, of technology and the way that information got delivered to people. And so you also were excited about its, its democratic capabilities. I don't think I could have possibly worried about like what Facebook would be like in 2016. I don't think anybody was doing that. People were thinking about, uh, you know, let information wants to be free and, and that that would be good and all kinds of yeah. stuff like that. When I was a lawyer, I represented broadcasters and because they were regulated, um, you know, and I, I think like all lawyers, you, you tend to um, sympathize with your client, right? It's just, it's just the human nature is that you, you sort of absorb your client's perspectives. And so, you know, they, they, to some extent, were, were angry that these newcomers were coming in and they weren't being regulated and they were, you know, sort of the golden children and they were hot and they were out in, in, on the West Coast. And, and so there was like in those quarters, no one predicted what would happen. But I think there was a sense that this can't be all good and it's not really fair that they're not regulated. And also, we know what human nature is like and we know what people like to watch on TV. Why do we think they're going to be so different when, when they get online? Line. Yeah. And I mean, there was a lot of unfairness to existing institutions. No sales tax for people selling in that way was pretty unfair. I mean, it was it may have been good to spur uh, innovation early, but then we have, you know, Amazon dominating selling nowadays and, and lots of other things like that. It must have been quite an interesting perch to be watching this kind of intensively from where you were. Yeah, well, so so then moving from from practice to academia in the mid two thousands, um, I think there was a lot of energy around defining the field. So, I mean, I'm this is probably maybe less interesting because this is kind of intramural, like legal academics and law. But but there was um, sort of a lot of struggles around what is this thing, your question, like what is internet law? What is cyber law? So I think that's, it's interesting to see a field try to define itself. Do you think it succeeded? What are the key definitions? Well, I think what, what happened was there was a very famous article. I mean, first of all, Larry Lessig wrote Coda's Law, um, which was, you know, sort of structured everyone's thinking, I think rightly, around how code, um, you know, can come to um, structure rights and responsibilities more thoroughly than law can. And I think that insight has has been kind of a, a pivot point for everyone. One example that I'm working on right now is in the Internet of Things smart city context. Let me put it this way. What we all learned was that law moves slower than technology. Um, and so there's sort of the, the nature of the field is running to catch up with, which is fruitless, we never will, with technological developments. And so if code is structuring relationships and legal relationships, um, then how can the field respond. I think that's basically the theme of the field. The other thing I'll say is in the very beginning, there was sort of this question of, is there something called cyber law or is there just how technology permeates health law, criminal law? 
housing law, you know, real estate, environmental law. I think we pretty much have landed in the second the second category, right? There is no such thing as kind of cyber law. If you're doing health law, you better understand how biometrics work, how data, you know, um, is gathered, how privacy is or is not regulated in the health field, patents, um, etc. So, I guess what we learned is there's no such thing. <laughs> well, you you have clearly made yourself very fluent in the tech in understanding the way platforms work algorithmically, you're able to, to talk about that. How did you like study that as it developed? How do you make sure that you're current as a lawyer in the technology that you have to, you know, worry about the policy that's related to it? Yeah. I mean, so, so I struggle with that. Um, and I, I don't think, um, uh, there, there are people who, who know it much better than I do in law. I guess what I would say is, you know, because of my background, I, I did a lot of work with Spectrum and Spectrum engineers and in the broadcast field. And so also environmental, to the extent I did environmental law, you're also working closely with the scientists. So, you know, I think there's the role of the lawyer, right? In some respect, if you're trained as a lawyer, is to translate what people are doing in the field to law or to find the intersections and the the interfaces. So, you know, in a sense, that's a skill that you can transfer to different kinds of sciences. And so computer science or data science is another of those sciences. And so the way I approach it is just to talk to people who really know about it, try to understand what I can and what I think I need to know, and then find the points of insertion where it touches governance, policy, you know, rights and responsibilities, which is basically what law does. I noticed you spent some time at the FCC. What was that like? What'd you learn there? It's a very different seat, really. Yeah. Steve Waldman was appointed by um, Julius Janikowski, who was chairman at the time, um, to run this project on um, really the FCC hadn't done it before and hasn't done it since, which is a kind of global look at what our citizens or people's information needs and how are they being um, met and what can we in the government do to improve it? This was, uh, I think it came out in 2011. And so I I spent a year um, working on that. My focus was was non-commercial. So I was looking at things like non-commercial broadcasting, early digitally native um, media outlets, and then also things that are often kind of marginal, but the idea was that they could be more central, things like community access channels and community media. There was a lot of talk in those days about local CSIP. This was um, just after, you know, the 2008-2009 crash, where, where if you look at kind of what happened in local news, I mean, now we've seen all those trends accelerate, but that was the beginning of the cliff for local news. And there was a lot of kind of moral or civic panic about how people were going to get information. This was before we were really talking about disinformation. It was just like information holes. And so the purpose of that project was to focus on those deficiencies as well as other kinds of media deficiencies and really look critically at how policy had allowed that to happen or was accelerating those trends and maybe things policy could do to reverse them. My sort of inevitable lens right now on the world is this concern about the radicalization of one of the parties, Republican Party, Trump, 
his potential return or just someone like him, the kind of moves that are being made online to enable that or which lead to more radicalization of the populace, which is, you know, equally as scary as, as uh, right-wing authoritarian leaders as a populace that wants it. What of the work that you've been doing uh, more recently bears on that sort of stuff? What would you like to highlight that you've been up to? So my work on, on disinformation and media platforms has in the last couple of years has really been with Karen Kornblue at the German Marshall Fund. And she started Digital Information and Democracy Initiative. And so the work there has been both research we've been doing, but also research we've been curating and trying to elevate on things like the design of platforms, like what makes them sort of the engagement model, the micro-targeting, the advertising whether you call it surveillance capitalism or exploitative advertising model, um, how that sort of pushes people. I mean, this is well known by now. When we started, it was a little less well known into rabbit holes and and radicalizes people. Right now, it is the sort of right-wing radicalization is um, a much bigger thing than any other kind of radicalization. But I, I think it's it's kind of agnostic. The model is agnostic as to the content. Anything that runs on dopamine hits and fears um, is is going to succeed uh, as the as far as the platforms are currently structured. So our work has been, first of all, to kind of curate the knowledge around that, as well as other kinds of um, design features. People call, talk about dark patterns. We sort of are trying to, to talk about them as manipulative patterns um, and contrast that with empowering patterns. You know, sort of if you were to ask someone, what do you want to be? Do you want to be radicalized and um, be pushed as part of a herd towards um, authoritarian control? They would say, no, that's not what I want. Right. And so if people basically are not getting the outcomes that they want, then um they're not being empowered. So, so in a way, there's a way to think about what the platforms are doing as manipulating, disempowering, um, and disenfranchising people. And so how would we turn that around, either through self-regulation, regulation, business, technology, et cetera? So that's, that's kind of the project writ large. And as part of that, I, I guess maybe I should back up and say that um, because Karen and I both come from a regulatory background, I guess our priors are that regulation and government has something to say about this, and it can do things that are consistent with the First Amendment, which of course has been sort of the huge obstacle or, or apparent obstacle. Um, second of all, that, um, you know, although this is a unique and new problem, it looks like a lot of other problems we've seen, which is that it's a business that's taken off really fast without regulation, and it has produced a lot of negative externalities, right? And that's happened before. And we've kind of gotten a grip on those negative externalities, we as a populace, as a you know set of government institutions, without killing the positive, you know, the, the industries that, that are also producing a lot of pos- positives. So those are, that's kind of the way we look at it. So then the question is, well, what did government do in the past and what can government do now and at what level of government and how can it work transatlantically with what governments are doing elsewhere? So you're thinking of like, I don't know, the Food and Drug Act 
uh, in like 1906 when you had to worry about whether the food was supply was okay because there was lots of examples, muckrakers showing what a mess it was. Yeah. So I think that's a great example. And we can use like that progressive era, that first progressive era as a touchstone. But then you got, you like get to the sixties and seventies, right. And we've got rivers on fire and we've got chemical and we've got silent spring and we've sort of got disaster. I'm willing to entertain the argument that it's easier when you're talking about chemicals and physical harms rather than mental social harms that are, that are created by information we entered the debate at a time when that difference was everything and people just kind of thrown up their hands because what are you going to do about information? We don't think that we have to be helpless. I saw that you had proposed uh, a new agency of the government that would be set up to be able to move with the speed of tech a little bit better. Can you talk about that proposal and where that sits? So what we proposed was either a new agency or a new part of the Federal Trade Commission, you know, which is which is the agency that is closest to at least the data and the advertising issues. And so I think, you know, lots of others have proposed similar things. Um, and, and there are bills now, part of the Build Back Better Act that didn't get passed um, would have authorized, would have created a new bureau in the FTC. Um, so, but there are a lot of other bills um, that have been proposed that would either give the FTC more money um, or would create a new agency outside of the FTC and would do pieces of what we suggested. So I think that's a very live idea. You know, I see these advertisements quite frequently right now, maybe it's because I'm in DC, by Facebook about basically, please regulate us. And I'm very suspicious of the ads because they seem like... uh, passing the buck and trying to make them, I don't know, so like a greenwashing type of ad. But what? But it does also seem to make sense that we can't wholly trust platforms to self-regulate. So far, we've seen that. And also, there are platforms currently being built or built, which are explicitly already designed to radicalize or support the right wing or, or others. How do you see this all fitting together? So, you know, when you have an unregulated industry and then there starts being a lot of noise about regulation, and of course, there there has already been regulation at the state level with the privacy laws that have passed in different states. And there, of course, there's also regulation, especially in Europe and and the UK um, outside the US, which affects these platforms and affects also how they deal with with American traffic. So whenever you have an unregulated industry that's starting to be regulated in bits and pieces, the incumbents in that industry will come in and say, okay, we see we're going to be regulated one way or another, so we would like to get in front of this, and here's how we would like to be regulated. And usually they will propose a soft regulation that they can handle um, and that maybe some of their competitors can't. So it ends up being, if not a win-win, at least a draw win for them. Um, So it's not surprising and we should all be skeptical, right, of of those proposals. Um, And so then I think that the, I mean, the the tricky thing for regulators is, um, and I don't, you know, I, I do think it's very difficult and we've seen GDPR in Europe critics who said, you know, this regulation is just going to help the incumbents because it's going to create a lot of kind of red tape and obligations that they can handle, but that new entrants can't. 
And I think there's been a lot of evidence that that's what happened. And so I'm not saying it's easy. One thing you'll see in a lot of um, bills, and, and I think there are mixed opinions about this, is you'll see a lot of bills come in and say, we're going to regulate whatever it is, micro-targeting or advertising or have reporting obligations, but only for the largest platforms. We're not going to touch the little guys. You know, and the reason they're doing that is for the, is is because they want to try to avoid the pro-incumbent tendency, the anti-entrant um, tendency. But then the problem is that, you know, you've got Parler or you've got, um, you know, you've got plenty of platforms that won't be affected by that. You know, I think, Nathaniel, the, the bottom line is that there there is nothing, I'll, I'll give you, an, there, there's kind of no perfect solution here. And I'm not saying that we have found one. Um, I'll give you another example of that. So one thing that we have advocated for, uh, we being Karen and I in the German Marshall Fund papers, um, and also, you know, plenty of other people, um, Mike Mesnick is, I think, one of the first, I think, best proponents of this is interoperability, data portability and interoperability, right? So the idea would be that um, you just wouldn't have to break up the companies or you wouldn't have to regulate them so much if people could take their data and their social graph and whatever they're getting from these platforms to another platform. And you could start having more competition in whatever attribute you're concerned about, privacy or moderation or whatever. So that is solve some problems and then it creates others because what it would also permit would be it would let you like have your own filter your own algorithm essentially and all the platforms and so you know I like it because it would I do a lot of work on public media and you could imagine you would have your local trusted civic institution would say we're like sponsoring this kind of uh, algorithmic filter. It's going to make sure that you see and it's go- is going to um, increase the salience of local information that's really, you know, pro. So you could plug in whatever algorithm you yeah. wanted. And yeah. yeah, that that's an interesting proposal. If I were Facebook, I sure wouldn't want to lose control of that or Google or Twitter or whatever, right? Exactly. Right. Because, right. Because they, they want to they center it around keeping people there to see more ads, right? They don't want to make it about in any anything wholesome. Or you could imagine there could be the Marjorie Taylor Green filter. Is that data portability? I mean, you could imagine also that she like she just called for everyone to leave Twitter, right? That would make it easier for all of those supporters to move over to the right wing Twitter, right? Absolutely. You yeah. could take every, that's the downside, right? <laughs> is that, is that um, we would have like more echo chambers and more silos. So what's the right answer? I'm still for data portability because I think um, every time we've implemented kind of a portability mandate, it's ended up being good. So I'm still for it, but I, I recognize, so what happens in that moment when she tells all her people to move over and yeah, people are using And actually, Facebook can then say, look, it's not our problem anymore, like what's on our platform. If if you don't like this stuff, you now have tools to make sure you and your kids and no one ever sees it. So then the responsibility for sort of curating, fostering our information environment falls on other people, not the platform. And, you know, I actually think we could see a lot of improvement that then, in a way, You've heard people liken our moment to, um, you know, the 150 years after the creation of the printing press, right? Like there was war and bloodshed until 
institutions evolved and the kind of human expectations evolved to be able to handle it. And maybe, you know, we're kind of in that moment of a lot of harm and we've got to evolve. And part of the evolution would be human evolution, not just platform evolution. I've interviewed a series of ex-employees of Facebook who came out of their public policy sort of politics part. They always have that perspective, but each of them have always emphasized the, the difficulty in making calls when you're actually faced with an example of misinformation. How do you stop this, but not that? How do you be fair? How do you allow free speech? They always emphasize the trickiness of that and how challenging it was for the platform. I've seen that you have suggested that people need to get away from that kind of outlook to more the design of the whole system. Can you talk about that distinction? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I I do agree. I think it's really hard. And I think, thankfully, we're past the point where the platforms were saying, we don't have editorial judgment, we're not media companies. And they're acknowledging that they do have editorial judgment, they are media companies, and they have to make those hard, hard decisions. First of all, those those decisions will not scale, and they, they'll be problematic because um, they're. And I'll, I'll just just uh, one, one an example. I just heard this morning. I was listening to the podcast conversation between Kara Swisher, and I think his name is um, Jake Costello, the former Twitter CEO. And he was talking about the early days of of Twitter's content moderation, and there were ISIS tweets that violated their community standards. These were like, you know, accounts with a hundred followers and they had no problem taking the accounts off. They were obvious violations, but then the New York post tweeted the same content. Right. And so the question was, we took down these, um, if we're going to be consistent, we would have to deactivate the New York post's account, which we don't want to do. And, but it's the same content, content based decisions, account by account based decisions are always going to be subject to second guessing and they won't scale. And so I think what you're getting at is we said, stop focusing on whack-a-mole, um, approaches to disinformation and other problematic content. And instead let's focus on, the algorithmic amplification. But there are a couple of things we mean by that. By that, we mean the whole engagement business model, right? That, that um, uh, you know, and maybe it points to more of a subscription-based business model as opposed to advertising-based. Two, that the algorithmic amplification, how it's tuned um, needs to be both more transparent and, you know, presumably managed more closely. And with respect to managing it more closely, we've proposed that there be more friction in the system. We were writing this around the beginning of the pandemic when there was all this COVID misinformation and it would get around, you know, it would, it would, it would reach, you know, 10 million um, hits before anyone on the platform took action and they would say it went viral too fast. And so we started talking about how there needs to be sort of um, circuit breakers in the same way there is in, in security, in securities trading. So that, you know, that is a systemic intervention. Then you can check and see what the content is and make a decision. And that decision may be fallible, but that's a decision at scale rather than a, than a, um, a, a one-off. Yeah. Would it be legal to require social media platforms to, to get rid of anonymity? 
it seems like part of the problem is you can create bots, you can create fake people, you can like there's all of this ability to uh, to hide behind anonymity and do terrible things. Maybe if you had to use your real name, if you had to use your real identity, that would cut that down a lot. Is that possible? I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I think so. One of the things we've proposed is know your customer law, right, which applies to um, other kinds of institutions like banks. That is legal to require them to know their customers. Now, whether if to the extent that these platforms themselves are speakers, which courts have held they are, right, then you know, a requirement that they choose to publish. Now, some of them do have real name requirements, but requiring them to have real name requirements, they would argue violates their free speech rights. Because, and that's so, what I was wondering about. Yeah, yeah and that's valid. Um, and so, you know, the platforms are speakers. Tim Wu, who's, who's now in the, in the White House, has written a re- really interesting pieces about how, you know, we need to be able to... Um, uh, Genevieve Lockyer is another First Amendment scholar I really like in this respect, that we have a First Amendment law that's kind of, as it's been interpreted by the courts, not really fit for purpose in terms of these tech intermediaries. And so we have this kind of binary, you're either speaker or you're not, a, you're either, either like a person or a thing. And, um, and they are somewhere in between. And, you know, I think we should be able to have a more mature First Amendment jurisprudence where we're able to say, yeah, they're kind of like speakers in some respects, but they're not full-blown speakers like you and I are in every respect. And so that, you know, there should be able to be certain requirements. I'm not sure that a mandate that they don't respect anonymity ever should be one, should pass muster, but more than people think, or certainly than the platforms think, passes muster today. What if some scenario like this happened? Uh, were a week or a couple days away from the election and one of the candidates or someone working for him or her releases some deep fake uh, video of the other candidate doing something that costs them the election and it gets around on social media without the circuit breakers or even with them, it's just going to take off on platform after platform, right? And people are going to have a hard time untangling and it that could stand in for a million other things and i mean we actually had that with comey to some extent let's say that happened what would we do afterwards to try to fix it that we could do before to try to prevent it okay so let me brainstorm with you because i haven't considered this question so i'm going to throw some things out and and we'll see and it'll be a great it's a great example of how all these values come into conflict So we could do what the Europeans do and just say, because that's such a dangerous possibility, we're just going to have a blackout period before elections. In France, you can't advertise the last six weeks or whatever it is. Yeah, Yeah. right. And so, but although your hypo is not an advertisement, right? It's just content, right? But in a certain sense, it is. It just might not be a paid advertisement, right? Right. Right. And it's monetized. I mean, they're making money from it. Potentially. Yeah. 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 So so we could let's just say we could have a law that captures that example, too. And and we just shut things down. All right. So um, first of all, you'd have a First Amendment argument against it. You know, I think that's exactly the kind of thing where I think that we should evolve the First Amendment because, you know, I think it should be permissible to do that. But you're also going to have the argument. And this, I think, is more difficult. And we've seen this 
in Washington state around platform regulation with respect to political ads is that, you know, who does it hurt? The people it hurts most are the, are the non, the, the new entrants, right? The people without name recognition, the people who really need the platform, who, who need their content up there, who need like that great meme to break through. And so in a way, you've got the same problem we've talked about with regulation and, and being pro-incumbent. That kind of role is kind of pro-incumbent. Um, what else could we do? We could have we could say, okay, we're not going to do that, but there's going to be liability for any kind of deep fake, and let's just limit it to election related um, deep fakes for platforms, so that they will police it themselves. And and you know that's some sort of combination of a Section two hundred and thirty reform and an election law FEC kind of rule. Um, and I think that could work. Except it's not going to be policed by Parler, right? They're going to promote it, right? It might be policed by Facebook or yeah, some... Yeah, but, but then Parler could, would be bankrupt, right? Because you're, they're exposed to liability. I mean, maybe... Or the Trump network or whatever the hell it's being called. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, look, legal regimes that impose liability do create moral hazard for anybody. You know, it's just money. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's after the fact. It's true. And so if the whole, you know, if the whole network or whatever was just set up and funded to run through the election and they don't care, they're judgment proof, then, yeah, perhaps um, then maybe that doesn't work. But if it's any kind of going business interest, I think, you know, and I think we saw the lawsuits against um, Fox and whoever else it was, um, for the the defamation of the voting machines. Uh, how are those going? Are those, I, I'm following. I haven't checked in recently, yeah. but I think they were, uh, but they were pretty effective in that people got fired, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the they, company, they seem to react, the company seemed to react to that more than they react to a lot of political attacks. Yeah. 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 And, and that's because they're set up to react to that because they have counsel and they have like standards review and they just don't want to get sued and they definitely don't want big judgments and their their insurers react to that and their premiums go up. And so I think like some sort of liability for deep fakes, but then that gets to, and you would know more about this than I do about, but like the the tech arms race on creating deep fakes and detecting them and like are we there? Could a platform really effectively police them? Wouldn't they have a pretty good argument that they were still trying to figure out if it was real or not? And that was newsworthy. And, you know, what could be more newsworthy than like Gary Hart being caught on a boat with a lady or whatever the, right. So what else could we do? I mean, I feel like there are so many things now, small and big that can actually change results and change the way people think that we're just unable to control. We, I, I feel quite helpless actually as a citizen to figure out, you know, I know people like you are working on it, but like, what, what can we do to stop uh, what's going on more generally? We have a problem of trust. It may be that we haven't hit bottom yet and that there has to be, um, you know, a more, a greater degree of, un, I mean, I hate to say this, but but less trust before we can like rebuild trust. Some people think you rebuild trust through decentralized um, sort of blockchain tech. There are tech ways to rebuild trust, to have um you know, faith in the authenticity, right, of your digital art or or your um, political ad or whatever it is. 
And I know there are people who are really bullish on that, FNTs or, or whatever. I also think there's a non-tech um, slog, hard work of rebuilding trust. And I'm really interested in kind of local civic institutions, which, you know, in some ways, and, and although they're fragile, but people do still trust their libraries, to some extent, their local public broadcasters. You know, if you look at the sort of trust metrics, those things are still pretty high. I think higher ed used to be a very trusted institution. I think it's becoming less trusted. I think if you can look at where trust still resides, and then, and this was part of a paper we wrote called Full Stack Approach to Reinventing Public Media or, or Civic Information Infrastructure. But how do you kind of build upon where people trust, connect that to platforms? This would be an argument for letting those institutions or encouraging them to build algorithmic filters or at least to endorse algorithmic filters that others have built to say, this one you can trust, right? Like this is the information you can trust. Um I don't know. So I don't really have a great answer, but it's it's either, you know, we have to rebuild trust and regulate the powerful platforms to align with, you know, sort of where trust is, or we're in the 150 years, hopefully less, of just a kind of like total devolution of our media environment until we can rebuild it. That notion of sort of waiting for a worse thing to happen so that we have enough, uh, I don't know, political capital to re-regulate it. I see that going on in so many spheres. Like I just talked to a guy, I don't know if you followed the book Gunfight, Ryan Bussey. He was a, a salesman for one of the firearms companies. And he's one of the few within that industry who kind of turned against it and w wants regulation. It hasn't mattered that we've shot little kids in schools. It still hasn't been bad enough to turn the corner on that. We had the Trump insurrection and it hasn't been bad enough to fix the electoral college or the way we count votes. One after another of these crucial underpinnings of good civic society are step by step falling apart. Isn't there a like an imperative now to get to this before it gets even worse rather than wait for it to do worse than it did in 2016? I mean, yeah, I think so. Look, I can't explain why there is it, it, as, uh, no more can, than can I, I can explain the indifference to climate change, right? Has, isn't it bad enough? <laughs> it isn't bad enough when also we have on the other side a campaign to pretend that it isn't. Right. And that's what we have in each of these cases. We have somebody on the other side, whether it's Fox News or politicians or ExxonMobil, working to make it impossible to regulate and a party that's captured by those sorts of people. We can't get these reforms through. Right. We're, we can't even fully carry the Democratic Party to get the the thing that you wanted to add to the FTC. Right. I just feel so stuck on this. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. <laughs> uh, in a way, you're talking about what can we do to save democracy? And someone might say we lost democracy a long time ago, right? Which is why we're not able to um, get 
notwithstanding the fact that, what, 80, 80% of the people want gun control reform. I don't know what to do about that. You've put yourself in a pretty interesting place. Like working on what you do is, it's important for all the reasons that we're talking about, because you need the thought leaders to be ahead of the regulation so that when you actually can do it, that people have have made proposals that you can take off the shelf, modify, and pass. Uh, what keeps you interested in this area? You have a choice. You're a professor. You can do what you want. What What is holding your interest in this? Explain that. Well, I think it's everything you've said. I mean, I think, I think that... Um, First of all, I'm also really interested still with this abiding interest in climate change. I actually see, as you just alluded to, connections between them, right? Connections to everything that that I care about in the world runs through information. We would have a lot better climate solutions right now if we didn't, if we hadn't had, we didn't call it disinformation all the time that Exxon and the Koch brothers were stoking climate denialism. But now we can see that's just one among many of the um, disinformation campaigns we've had. So, you know, it's it's everything I care about. Also, it's intellectually interesting. Yeah. To the people I had on uh, on the show earlier with a guy who runs the Yale program in climate communications and the George and the George Mason one. And and, you know, they're part of that disinformation fight. And it's happening, you know, in different uh, verticals, sort of. It's happening kind of more globally. When you look around and you sort of see your allies, who is doing really good work that, you, that, uh, that you'd like to bring attention to in the area that, that you work in? Well, I think you're you're right to point them out and the Southern Poverty Law Center and um, sort of uh, Anti-Defamation League, like the sort of some of the civil rights groups that, um, you know, approach it from um, the, the, um, their stakeholders. Uh, you know, I think and what Karen, I think, and, and has tried to do at the German Marshall Fund is, is really to reach out to them and to say, look at how can we help you on sort of the policy side to address um, the substantive harms that are happening in your in your communities. If the Congress broke out the piece of legislation that was just the part that would help the FTC have a new agency to look at this, would that pass on its own? Could we pass some of these things or are they all so partisanized that it's impossible? So that's a great. So just on the FTC, so right, could they get 60 votes and, and and pass it through regular order? And, you know, I think like Republicans have traditionally not liked the FTC because it's nanny state and all of that. But if we look around now and also look at rural communities and how they're being completely gutted because of consolidation in big ag, also completely polluted by, you know, factory farming and Lots of that goes through the competition side of the FTC as well as the, you know, consumer protection side. Well, I think to some extent you might be able to get um, that. That's a that is a rural constituent interest. You know, one of the problems is that we're just so polarized that even though substantively they probably agree with it, whether or not they would vote that way, I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's. Um, uh, pie in the sky to think something like that. And get, especially given the critique of big tech now on both sides of the aisle, that maybe it could. I mean, it does seem like if there's a way for anything to be viewed as advantaging either party, then 
it gets caught up in that. I guess I've taken a more of a pessimistic tone than I, in some sense, would like to have. What gives you feelings of optimism in, in this area? What do you think are the positive possibilities going forward? I think the pessimism is warranted. You know, if you're in policy and you're coming up with policy proposals, you sort of have to get behind some like affirmative case. And I think if one's thinking about that and and look at wh what's happened over the last couple of years and sort of how far the critique of these platforms has come from from nothing, that's pretty positive. And they have made changes, some, the big ones, right? Yeah, they've, yeah. Right? They've deplatformed some people. They've changed their algorithms to be more personal, less political. There are there are things like that that. Well, I think that change was a bad thing, right? Like that was it. The Facebook pivot to personal ended up and to groups ended up in 2018 ended up exacerbating. Ugh, yeah, well, I don't know enough about it, but I, you know, I know that it was an attempt at least to change the news feed in a way that was less. Uh, detrimental to democracy. To, to move it from Fox to Crazy Uncle, but then Crazy Uncle with QAnon. So. I don't know. We've made a lot of strides in the past couple of years. Um, and there are a lot of people to thank for that. Um, you know, a huge mobilization across a lot of, you know, NGOs and academia and policy. There are these structural impediments that go to the structure of, our, of money and politics. And I don't know that we are a match for that. But, um, uh, but you know, it, it's like little, you do what you can. And at some point, the dam is going to break on that stuff. I don't know when. I mean, I agree with you. Like, what's it going to take? Um, but at some point, it will break. Yeah, it might break the other direction and get worse first. It might. Yeah. <laughs> it might. <laughs> um, is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have or that you'd like to be asked? Uh, well, I guess the, uh, the other uh, thing we didn't talk about is kind of um, what the cities are doing, cities and localities, and like we've mostly focused implicitly on federal regulation. And, and that's another thing, another source of optimism. I think we're moving into a period, um, I mean, optimism and pessimism, because some states are doing lousy things, but um, and some states are crippling their cities from doing what they want to do. But I also think that we're in this period really of a resurgence or a surge of state power and kind of um, state interest in a lot of the state attorneys general are, are doing great things, including I just have to put in a plug for Phil Weiser in, in Colorado, who's running for reelection. And uh, um, but he's done amazing things with tech. And I think there are others like them. And so if the, if we're screwed at the federal level, you know, we have to hope that at the state and local levels, we're not. I'd like to talk to you longer, but I want to honor your time. So I appreciate you taking it. I learned a lot. Is there anything else you want to say? No. Thanks a lot. It was okay. fun. Thanks. Appreciate All it. All right. Bye-bye. That was Ellen Goodman. She's at Rutgers.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.